Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, been a bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Good afternoon and welcome to the Program for Public Discourse Debating Public Policy Series. I'm Kevin Marinelli, Executive Director of the program. The Program for Public Discourse strives to promote democratic values by fostering robust discursive practices in the classroom, across Carolina, and beyond. And we do that first by engaging issues that are tough and socially significant, and second, by transcending the simplistic either or binary of politics to ask questions that are more nuanced, more complex, and frankly, more interesting. And today is no exception as we engage the issue of reparations. The concept of reparation appears to be a universal one and often hotly contested. Perhaps the most prominent example of reparations on a large scale are those paid out to victims of the Holocaust in Germany still today. Most recently, there's been talk about paying victims of uh, global climate change reparations in the, in the developing world as these people suffer the greatest consequences and contribute least to global climate change. In the context of the United States, uh, discussions around reparations uh, focus specifically on the legacy of American slavery. Historically, discussions around reparations have entered and then receded from the mainstream of public discourse. However, in 2014, there was a provocative essay written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which appeared in The Atlantic, which regalvanized momentum around reparations, which was then sustained by the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, which continues still today. So today, we're going to take a deeper dive into the discussion of reparations in the American context with three leading scholars on the topic. Our first panelist, William Darity Jr., affectionately known as Sandy, is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies, and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Previously, he served as director of the Institute of African American Research, director of the Moore Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, director of the Undergraduate Honors Program in Economics, and director of graduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Randall Kennedy is Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He was born in Columbia, South Carolina. For his education, he attended St. Albans School, Princeton University, Oxford University, and Yale Law School. He served as law clerk for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. He is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and the Supreme Court of the United States. And our discussion today is going to be moderated by our own Usamudia James, who joined the UNC School of Law faculty in 2021. Her writing and teaching interests include education law, race in the law, administrative law, and torts. James is the author of numerous articles, book chapters, and popular press commentary exploring the interaction of law and identity in the context of public education. Her work has appeared in NYU Law Review, the Michigan Law Review, and the Minnesota Law Review, among others, as well as in the pages of the New York Times and Washington Post. And I should also add that uh, Sandy Darity has recently published a book, which the PPD has secured copies of and will distribute at our upcoming event in the spring on affirmative action. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand it over to our panelists for today.
Thanks so much, uh, Kevin, and welcome to all our participants, whether you are joining us from far away or from someplace here on campus, we're delighted to have you. I'm also delighted to have our two discussions with us today. Hello, Professor Kennedy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Hello, Professor Darity. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off with a definition. I want to jump right in. Um, and the word reparations is related to the word repair, right? Both come from the Latin word meaning to restore. And so our conversation today is really about the viability of reparations as a way to repair racial inequality in the United States, or maybe even restore it to what it might have been if racial subordination was not so central to sort of early development and founding of the United States. And so trying to get us all on the same page, Let's start talking about what reparations might be for. Right? I've already made a reference back to um, enslavement in the United States. What would reparations be for? Professor Darity, I'll start with you. Well, let me start by attempting to define reparations. Uh, the definition that Kirsten Mullen and I use in our book, From Here to Equality, is uh, reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. So this would be a general definition that would be applicable to any instance in which there is some sort of compensatory action that needs to be taken for an atrocity or for a series of atrocities. And by acknowledgement, we mean that the culpable party admits that it has committed such a grievous injustice and simultaneously makes a commitment to engage in an act of restitution for those atrocities. The second component, redress, is the actual act of comp compensation, usually taking the form when we're concerned about victimized communities, usually taking the form of some type of monetary payment, whether it's uh, the uh, payments that were made to victims of the Holocaust that were previously mentioned by Professor Marinelli, or in the U.S. case, payments that were made to Japanese Americans who were subjected to unlawful and unjust mass incarceration during the course of World War II. And then the, the, the third component of reparations and under our definition is closure, which is the point at which the uh, culpable party and the victimized community come to an agreement that the account has been settled. And uh, at that point, the victimized community will make no further claims for restitution on the, uh, uh, from, from the culpable party unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or there's a new wave of atrocities that takes place directed against them. Okay. So in the United States, what might we see? Let's say we were making reparations. To what would reparations be responding? Well, there's a host of atrocities that have been committed by the United States to which reparations could be responding. But I think in our conversation today, I, obviously our primary concern is about reparations for African-Americans. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, reparations would be something that would be enacted for the purposes of addressing the full array of atrocities that have been directed against black Americans from slavery into the present moment. So this would include uh, the period of legal segregation in the United States, which was, uh, was, which was accompanied by a wave of upwards of 100 massacres that took place all across the country 
In the year 1919 alone, there were about 35 of these massacres that took place where white terrorists not only murdered black Americans, but also seized and appropriated their personal property. Uh, and then uh, in the post-civil uh, rights period, we have ongoing mass incarceration. We have, uh, uh, we have police executions of unarmed blacks. We have ongoing discrimination in housing, credit, and employment markets. And most significant from the standpoint of the project for reparations that I envision is uh, the, the persistence of a massive racial wealth gap, which constitutes the, uh, the best cumulative indicator, cumulative economic indicator of the intergenerational consequences of white supremacy in the United States. And so from my perspective, the, the, the minimum condition for a reparations program for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here is a project that would eliminate the racial wealth gap, which would require an expenditure of at least $14 trillion. Okay. So I want to talk about time as a key site of contestation when we're thinking about uh, reparations. Um, Yuvar Joshi, he's a faculty member at Allard, talks about how Americans think about the past. Uh, his argument is that whites think about the past as past, right? So maybe Black Americans think about the past as constituting the present. And those are different lenses for thinking about how far back reparations might go. Professor Kennedy, do you have thoughts about the timeline, right, that we've already invoked in terms of what reparations would be responsive to? Well, well I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Did, I'm sorry. I thought I thought the question was asked to me. Am I incorrect? No, I, I, for I, it. That, that's fine. I, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Either Professor Kennedy or Professor Barry, whoever wants to. Well, speak well let me defer. Let me defer to, to Professor Kennedy. Go ahead, because he hasn't had a chance to speak yet. No, I I, I'm, I, I was simply going to say that um, uh, in terms of setting a, a you know groundwork for our discussion. I'm, I'm happy that in the definition, um, segregation has been mentioned a number of times. Oftentimes when we think about uh, you know, the reparations discussion, slavery bulks very large, and obviously it, 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 it probably should and it can. Um, I think though that sometimes it's useful to think about the age of segregation because the age of segregation does, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more recent. It's part, it's part of living history. Oftentimes we think about reparations and slavery. People say, well, yeah, but, you know, there are no more slaves. The slaves are dead. The slaveholders are dead. Uh, that's, you know, long, long, long ago, as if this was a time when the dinosaur roamed. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is there are millions and millions and millions of people who are alive who have been touched by the segregation regime. And um, I think that by talking about segregation, Boris Bicker in his book, wonderful book, you know, The Case for Black Reparations, made a point of urging a focus on segregation to get out, to, to make people Think about the, you know, the 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 um, how present the history of 
racial oppression has been. It's not long, long ago with people who were dead. Nope. It's people who are alive with us. Uh, you know, our, our parents, our siblings. The segregation regime is something that is part of um, our, you know, our, our living memory. That's the only point that I'd like to make. Professor Darity, go, go, go right ahead. No, I, I, think, I think we're in agreement here. Uh, I, I was going to say that the same people who say that slavery happened so long ago are frequently the same people who walk around with the trappings in the Confederacy. Uh, so uh, there's some inconsistency in terms of their view about what is past and what is not past. Uh, but I think that the important point that, that uh, Professor Kennedy is making is that it's the post-slavery period that needs to be something that is drawn fully into the picture for the case for reparations. And I would argue that it's federal policies that took place in the aftermath of slavery that have maintained and perpetuated this enormous racial wealth gap. Uh, I would start with the uh, the point at which the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, uh, land that they never received, while one and a half million white American families received 160-acre land grants in the Western territories under the Homestead Act uh, as the nation completed its colonial settler project in, in the Western territories. Um, and uh, Trina Shanks-Williams estimates now that there are 45 million living white Americans who continue to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patents. Um, in addition, as I mentioned, there were upward of 100 massacres that took place across the nation conducted by white terrorists where they seized and appropriated Black-owned property. That was another mechanism for deepening the Black-white wealth gap. And then in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from land distribution as its means of asset building to home ownership and the promotion of home ownership. And it does this in a highly discriminatory fashion. We can start with the presence of restrictive covenants that are supplanted by a federal policy of redlining, which was a public-private partnership between the Federal Housing Administration and local banks. And then we had the GI Bill where uh, the home ownership provisions in the GI Bill, the subsidies and supports for home ownership, were overwhelmingly given to returning white veterans from World War II and not given in any significant degree to returning black veterans from World War II, further reinforcing the racial wealth gap. So it's a host of things that took place after slavery ended that are really critical from my standpoint in the case for reparations. Can I, I ask, can I ask, Professor Derry, listen, you know, we, American history is awash in injustice. And, and let's just focus on, for, for, for now, let's just focus on the injustice that was um, uh, imposed upon uh, African Americans. I think, you know, you've, in your work, you've shown this, and, you know, in your exposition, you've shown this, you know, altogether clear. Here's my basic, and I'm, I'm not fighting with you, frankly. I, I think, yes, we, you know, this, this injustice is with us. It has, you know, it has current effects. My main question to, to you, though, is what, 
how how are we going to translate how do we translate your sense of this tremendous injustice into working policy because i mean it's not like it's not like you can force the United States government or state governments or municipal governments to do something. You've got to persuade people to, to do these things. My question to you is, how do you persuade people to you know, um, channel large amounts of resources to African Americans even though American society is still awash in racism. I mean, that's the problem that you confront. How do, how do you propose to confront that problem? Well, I think that, um, that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a good answer to your question, because this is a tough one. Uh, but I will say that I think that there has been a change that has taken place in the political climate in the United States. And the ultimate question is whether or not the, in, the recalcitrant 30% of the population that insists on preserving minority rule and is willing to actually uh, conduct a coup d'etat to try to preserve that minority rule is whether or not they will continue to exercise disproportionate power. I think that the remaining 70% of the American population is open and potentially receptive to the type of plan of restitution that, that we've been describing. It's interesting to note that if you go back to the year 2000, a survey that was conducted by Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson at the University of Chicago on American attitudes towards reparations found that 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. If you get to the year 2021, a survey conducted at UMass Amherst now indicates that it's closer to 30% of white Americans. So that's a sea change, even if we're not at a point at which the majority of white Americans are in a position to endorse uh, black reparations. Uh, and I think it's that sea change that lies at the heart of the intense opposition that is being demonstrated by some segments of the population towards so-called critical race theory. Because I think there's a recognition that the American public is learning more and more about its true and accurate history, and as a consequence, will be open to an act of restitution. See, you have a more generous view of uh, the American, you know, American public than I do. I mean, you you, you talk about the thirty percent that are recalcitrant. My reading of it is, yep, you got that 30%, but you've got a much larger number, uh, larger group who say, listen, yep, uh, there was slavery, yep, there was segregation, yep, there was a lot of terrible things, but uh, world history is awash with misery, world history is awash with terrible things. Um, I'm interested, I can imagine people saying, I want, I, I, we, can't, we can't repair all of the terrible things that have happened through history because there's just so much atrocity. What we can do, however, you know, good folks, I think, say what we can do is try to create uh, public policy 
that will be helpful for those who are living and going forward. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I must say, I, I, I don't, I don't think there's going to be much of an appetite for trying to, you know, on your level, uh, get right with the atrocities of the past because that is, there's so many atrocities. They go so deep. It's so broad. It's so overwhelming. I think people feel overwhelmed by it. But there are atrocities for which reparations has been paid. So what makes the degree of damage that's been inflicted on black Americans so exceptional that we would not attempt to make a, a concerted effort to address that specific set of harms and damages? Japanese Americans that received reparations payments, families that lost loved ones in the course of the 911 attacks, for which the United States government itself was not responsible, have received payments. And the individuals who were held hostage in Iran have received $10,000 per day in restitution, which comes to $4.4 million for the typical recipient. And the United States government didn't hold them hostage. So there are many instances in which people have been subjected to harms in which reparations have been paid. I'm not sure why you want to make the case for black Americans continue to be the outlier of an injustice that has not been addressed by the United States government, which lies fully in the hands of the United States government. I think our moderator wants to break in here. (laughs) Well, what what we're stepping or or, or talking around, I think, is the social and political perceptions of African-Americans in the United States, right? And so other groups might seem more sympathetic politically. And I think Professor Barry is right that we are seeing shifts after the, you know, we'll call it the racial reckoning of of the summer of 2020. Attitudes start to shift thinking about what what is the source of racial disparities and, and can we be more sympathetic to the history and experiences of Black Americans in the United States. So I think that's one aspect, right? How, how do we think about this group? Um, and I'm not sure we're going to get answers anytime soon about how to change that. But does time matter? And also does form matter? That is, if we, part of what made Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece so popular was that he started with redlining, right? He started in the 1950s and 60s, and that felt more immediate to people. So does it matter how far back we decide to think about what needs to be repaired. And two, does the structure or the form of reparations matter? Will people be uh, less open to cash payouts, right? Based in part on on stereotypes about black people and money, um, you know, like the welfare queen stereotype comes to mind. Or are people going to be more open to more structural intervention, a massive you investment? Mean the welfare school? queen, like the former uh, the former Green Bay Packers quarterback in Mississippi. Yes. <laughs> right. So this is right. So it's the way we think about these terms and who applies to is absolutely race. And so do, do white Americans be more open to more structural interventions, massive school investment, changes to health care policy, better welfare policies for families? Does that matter? I think all of it matters. Um, it, it seems to me, and, and, and to, to go back to an earlier point that you put your finger on, I think that we really do have to be attentive to the continuing existence of, you know, racism in our polity. Um, I think that um, 
Professor Darity, you're exactly correct when you when you sort of went down a list. You know what what about 9/11? You know uh, people were very quick to you know we got to help these people. There's an emergency. There was this tremendous emotional embrace of people who were victimized by people. You know it, it wasn't the United States government. It was other people. You might very well have said, "Geez." That's really too bad, but why should I have to pay with my tax dollars for that? I can imagine people saying that, but they did not. Uh, similarly, you're exactly right. Why is it that with respect to uh, the, 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 you know, the, the struggle over um, uh, Japanese Americans and their treatment during World War II? You know, you, it was a very different sort of stance than the stance that one gets when we're talking about African Americans. Why? In part because African Americans are still stigmatized. In part because there, frankly, there are millions of people who as soon as you say slavery, there are millions of Americans who actually say, they might not, they might not, who actually think, they might not say it, but they actually think, you know, actually black people were saved from Africa. Uh, they were brought to the United States. They got the benefit of becoming Christianized. They got the benefits of coming to the United States. You know, frankly, they should thank God that uh, they're in the United States and that they're not in, let's say, Angola. Um, that is still very much a part of this discussion. The fact of the matter is that black people are still stigmatized. And part of the stigmatization is a not only an opposition to the idea of reparations, but actually a contemptuous uh, opposition. That's, that's part of our story. Now, what about this as a partial response? Because it seems to me that that's there, and it's sentimental not to take that into account. But what about this as a partial response? Listen, um, because of the history of racial oppression in the United States, uh, black Americans are needy in various ways. Various ways they are vividly needy. What um, about saying... Uh, can huh? you use a different term besides needy? The term is, yeah. What? There, so there are disparities, right? There are disparities, right? As a yeah, result of history, needy I think there are disparities. Deeply paternalistic. I was, I was just hoping you Okay, well, I mean, I mean, I don't even like the term repair, actually, even though I do use the term reparations. But, okay, <laughs> go ahead. There are, there, for various reasons, if you take a look at the various indicia of well-being, or the opposite of, you know, or, or, or disadvantage, uh, black Americans are going to be disadvantaged in, you know, practically everything you can look at from, you know, uh, lifespan to vulnerability yeah. to various disease to vulnerability to Finance. incarceration, the whole gamut. And all of these things are tied to the history of racial oppression. I, I think we can agree on that. How about, though, we, you know, there, there, there's a big country, black Americans are a minority. In order to move the levers of public policy, you're going to have to have a whole lot of people 
What about saying we need to push resources to those who um, need more resources? Now, it may vary. It's, it's certainly the case that there are a lot of black Americans who need resources, but you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of white Americans who need resources too. Why not make need the central arbiter as opposed to the history of the need? So from my perspective, reparations is not an anti-poverty program. It's mm -hmm. a policy that should be introduced for the purposes of meeting an unmet debt. And specifically, it should be used for the purpose of eliminating the racial wealth gap in the United States, which is uh, a huge disparity, a chasm, if you will, between opportunity and economic security between black and white Americans. And it's a chasm that exists at all levels of the class distribution in the United States. So, for example, at the upper end of the wealth distribution, one quarter of white American families have an, uh, a level of net worth in excess of $1 million, which is true for only 4% of black American families. Uh, at the bottom end of the distribution, whites in the lowest end of the income distribution, the poorest 20% of whites, have a higher level of wealth at the median than all black Americans taken together. And so uh, this is, this is a, a profound issue that cannot be resolved by some sort of universal need-based program. And in fact, I'm strongly in favor of such universal needs-based programs. I'm an advocate of, a, of, a, of an economic bill of rights for the 21st century, which would include a federal job guarantee and the like. But I recognize that these kinds of steps would not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Universal programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Indirect race-specific programs will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. People frequently talk about giving black Americans scholarships. But if you look at the data carefully, you'll find that black heads of household with a college degree have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. This is all a function of the intergenerational transmission of wealth advantage that is held by white households in contrast with black households. I think the, the last comment I'd like to make in this context is I don't think we should be imprisoned by inaccurate and false beliefs that might be held by a significant segment of the population. As I said earlier, there's 30% of the American population that's wholly intractable. There's another 30% that now says that they favor reparations for black Americans. So the struggle has to be persuading the remaining 40% that reparations is the right thing to do. And clearly it is. And now we're at a point at which we're addressing the logistical dimensions in a detailed way. And that's a major step beyond simply arguing over whether or not reparations is a good or a bad thing. Wouldn't you agree that there's only a certain amount of uh, time, energy, resources that can be devoted to, um, you know, channeling resources to various parts of the, the population? If, if that is true, don't we have to make choices about priorities? 
So for instance, for you, Professor Darity, if, if you were put to the choice of either of, you know, um, economic bill of rights, universal economic bill of rights, uh, as opposed to um, reparations for African Americans, if, if, if it was a choice of which of those two things you were going to prioritize, which one would you choose to prioritize? Well, well first of all, I don't want to accept the scarcity principle. Well, why not? I mean, don't you I have think we to? can do both. We can absolutely do both. In, in a country of 300 million people, there should be a sufficient amount of energy and effort that can be put forward to accomplish both sets of goals. However, if you we haven't done either me, one. If you're asking me what to prioritize, independent of the question of whether or not we have to choose one or the other, no. I am going to prioritize reparations at this point because it's a debt that's been unpaid for close to 160 years. Mm-hmm. Is this about both, Professor Darity, you are very clear that there is a specific economic component that needs to be responded to. So it doesn't just seem as if it's about a symbolic value, right? Although in your response about there's a debt that has to be paid, there's something here that's sort of psychic, like this is owed, right? But it, it seems to me but, that you're but also it's, making it's, a point it's a that consequence. Can... It's a consequence of the intergenerational ramifications of the yeah. failure to meet that obligation in the aftermath of the Civil War and yeah. what it has meant in terms of the uh, the opportunities and, and lack of economic security for living black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. So I want to talk a little bit then about how we figure out who's eligible. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there might be places of convergence and divergence here for both of you. Uh, Professor Darity, I know you've talked about this in detail. Who would be eligible for reparations, assuming we were going to move forward with uh, policy reparations for black Americans? So it would be the descendants of the freedmen who were denied the 40-acre land grants. And so this would be uh, living black Americans whose ancestor, who have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, Kirsten Mullen and, I, and Mullen and I have advanced two criteria, which are related to what I just said. The first is a lineage standard. An individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. Uh, The quality of genealogical research that's been done on the African-American community is is extraordinary now. Uh, And uh, so this is something that is not uh, an impossible mission by any means. And in our book, we actually advocate that the federal government provide free genealogical services Mm -hmm. to anyone who's trying to establish a claim on those grounds. But there's a second criteria that must be met also, which we refer to as an identity standard. An individual would have to have self-reported or self-identified themselves as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations uh, to be eligible to, uh, to, be eligible to receive uh, the benefits of this program. Can I can I push you push back on you a little bit on this one? Because I, I must say that this aspect of of your of your project um, I find I find disturbing. Let me let me put, let me 
try to push back as, first. as a black South Carolinian. You yes, in fact, let's first? start there. Let's start there. Let's That's start right. There. Okay. I'm from. I was born in 1954 in Columbia, South Carolina. It is very likely. It is. It's. I mean, I, I'd be willing to put a lot of money on this proposition that my people were enslaved in South Carolina. It's probably right. I don't. You know, I, I haven't done genealogical study, but it's. It's. It's very likely that my forebears were enslaved. On the other hand, I mean, there were some black South Carolinians in the age of slavery who owned slaves. Now, just suppose we did a little bit of study, and it turns out that my people were among the people who somehow got from under slavery and became enslavers. If 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 that was that's, that's, a, that's irrelevant from my my standpoint. It doesn't matter who the enslavers were, as long as you have at least one ancestor who was enslaved, then you meet the first part of the criteria. The second part involves the question of whether or not you are currently living as somebody who is a Black American. Uh, I I don't want to give reparations to people who are living as white Americans who might also have ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. But it's it's irrelevant who the slave owners were. Okay, the question can I... is whether or not you had any ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. I mean, virtually all of us have white ancestors who potentially were slave owners. And that right. does not obviate the horrors that have been inflicted on people who are descendants of the persons who were freed at the end of the Civil War. Okay, l l let me ask a so somewhat different on the on the ADOS. So black America is a complicated polity. You know, you got you got the ones you got black Americans like like me. Uh, and, and like me, I mean, I'm like, like you. you. <laughs> what, what about what about one, one thing that I have, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about, though, very worried about. Um, what about uh, black people who hail from, I don't know, Jamaica, Antigua, Nigeria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before I get to that, let, let me be clear. Are you saying that reparations is a good idea, but you want it to include other people? Or are you still hammering away at your sets of questions about the significance and importance of adopting a reparations plan? I'm not, listen. Because, I mean, all your concerns seem to be logistical, ultimately. I don't think you disagree with the idea of the importance and relevance of re reparations. Yeah, I no, I don't. You just I've, keep asking questions about, you know, well, this would go wrong, or this might go wrong, or this can't be done quite this way. Two things. Um, number one, I am, I am, I am not, I am not going to go to war against you know your project for reparations, largely because, frankly, for me, I'm I'm more into. I, I prefer the 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 framework of. Of distributive justice as a pair as opposed to reparative justice, but frankly, the reparative justice route gets me much of what I want. So you know, I'm not I'm I'm not going to squawk. I mean, if you know, if if we were talk if we were in a 
political philosophy seminar room, you know, maybe we would have differences, but frankly, uh, you know, the, the, the reparationist project, as far as I can see it, largely aims at getting money and other resources to people who are in need, and to that extent, I'm with it. I do think, however, that the logistical issues really are important, and the political issues, and one thing that I have in mind, to go back to my question, I'm very afraid of uh, dividing black America uh, along lines of, well, you know, whose people were here in the, you know, it, it, before the Civil War? Is that, a, is that a concern? Should I be concerned about that? Or are you saying I ought not be concerned about that? Well, I, 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 frankly, I think that type of division already exists. Uh, and it's something that it requires a great deal of sensitivity to address, but it is a problem that's already present. Uh, you know, you may want to argue that the debate over reparations is aggravating that division, but the division yes. is definitely there already. Yes, uh, and will it be but, aggravated? Well, if, if it is aggravated by doing the right thing, then by all means, aggravate it. I am not worried about antagonizing individuals or groups of people as a basis for not doing the right thing. Okay. You so are always going to antagonize somebody. And so the question is whether or not it is the appropriate thing to do. And I want to argue that if we are talking about reparations that's associated with the descendants of the persons who were the freedmen in the aftermath of the Civil War, then it is appropriate to talk about them as the recipients of reparations. And here's why. The first thing that matters is the fact that it is the freedmen who were not given the 40-acre land grant. That condition does not apply to other black people across the diaspora. They do not have that United States specific experience. They may well have claims for reparations. In fact, I would argue that they do, but they don't necessarily have claims for reparations from the United States government. So if somebody is of Haitian ancestry, there definitely is a claim to be made on France. That's a case where there might also be a claim to be made on the United States government. Mm -hmm. But if we think about the British Caribbean, all of those class, all of those countries that now constitute independent nations like Jamaica, Antigua, uh, Barbados, all of them have a claim on the United Kingdom. And I think that's, that's wholly unambiguous. But it is black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved here who were denied the 40 acre land grants that they were promised who have a specific claim on the United States government. And, and I, I don't see anything intrinsically divisive about that. But if some people feel provoked by that, then so be it. This is a question about social costs, right? Professor Darity, you're suggesting that there might be social costs of reparations, but on balance, it's worth it. And Professor Kennedy, you might be suggesting that the social costs might not be worth it, especially if you believe there are other ways to get there. And I, and I think you, you, you both disagree about whether there are, in fact, other ways. So I want to flip the question. What is the social cost of not 
having a focused conversation or 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 thought project or or political movement for reparations for Black Americans in the United States, right? That is, if we abandon this project um, and think we're going to do something that's broader or more universal based on uh, societal-wide disparities, what are the political and social or cultural costs there? Oh, there are costs because, I mean, obviously there are people who uh, have have invested very strongly in a reparationist project and are going to feel wronged if that doesn't proceed. And, you know, is that a social cost? Yeah, it's a social cost. And I think it's an important one that people ought to, ought to, uh, you know, take into account. The social cost is not purely attitudinal. It's substantive. Uh, And the most substantive consideration is the following. Uh, For 160 years, black Americans have been seeking full citizenship in the United States, and uh, it would require a reparations plan for black Americans to have the material basis for full citizenship. This contrasts a bit with the Native American community, whose goal and objective, as I understand it, is primarily uh, considerations of sovereignty. But if we are substantively concerned about the citizenship status, the effective citizenship status of black Americans, then the only way this can be accomplished is through a full-scale reparations plan. After 2020, we saw, you know, what we could call historic protests or racial justice. By 2022, I'd say we're seeing some backlash to that. And so does that, does the current context, provide any insights for the viability or possibility of reparations in the United States? Is it more needed than ever, or does it tell us something about how difficult the political road might be ahead for a reparations project? I think that the current, you know, uh, landscape shows us it's been difficult uh, and will continue to be difficult. I mean, after all, we're talking just, just a couple of weeks ago, the United States Supreme Court was hearing the latest uh, uh, affirmative action case involving involving the very institution that is, is helping to sponsor this wonderful forum. Now, affirmative action is a sort of it seems to me is a in, in higher education is a very interesting uh, item because there it seems what we've really had is a disguised reparations project. Um, The Supreme Court of the United States basically said, no, you can't have racial affirmative action on explicit reparations grounds. That's what that, you know, Bakke. So they came up with something else, namely a diversity rationale. But the diversity rationale, actually, that's, you know, that, that was nominal. The thing that was really pushing it was a sense that, you know, these people have been wronged and we need to do something to repair that. I think that affirmative action, at least with black Americans, was very largely reparations based with this diversity, um, this diversity cover. I think what is about to happen, however, is that we're about to lose that, and I think that um, the pushback against a very modest, I mean, good grief, the affirmative action in higher education 
was a very modest thing, but even that modest reform is going to be, from what I can tell, taken back, and that is a sign of how um, unwelcome, how unwelcome uh, racial reformism is, regardless of the theory that is under, you know, that is, that is, that is um, uh, regardless of the theory in which it is pitched. So I, I want to go back to my point about minority rule. And I want to argue that the existing Supreme Court is really part of the architecture of a minority rule in the United States. And so that's one of the central questions as to whether or not we will restore an environment in which the majority of Americans are actually making decisions about what happens in this country. So I don't want to view the Supreme Court's decision as an indicator of mm -hmm. widespread beliefs across the entire American population. We know that this is a court that was designed to promote the position of a minority perspective in the United States. However, that said, uh, affirmative action from my perspective is not reparations. It's not a form of reparations. It's an anti-discrimination measure. And on top of that, to the extent that it's effective, and I, I think Professor Kennedy's absolutely right that it's been applied quite modestly. Uh, if we look at the demographic composition of the faculties at the most elite universities in the United States, we can't say that a heck of a lot has really happened over the course of the past 30 years. And so, uh, so affirmative action has been modest in its impact. But if we want to think about what its implications are, if it's more effectively applied, it has an impact on income inequality, but it has very little effect on wealth inequality. And so once again, we're, we're, we're confronted with this issue of what do we do about the racial wealth gap, and affirmative action is not something that can contribute anything significant to elimination of the racial wealth gap. So we've been talking about this. Oh, I want to go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, no, please, please. Well, I was going to say we've been talking about it a bit abstractly, and so I want to make it more focused and think about HB 40, right, as a, as a political step in in moving towards reparations. And I'd like to know, Professor Darity, whether you support that move, what do you think the future of that move is, and Professor Kennedy, to the extent that you've been raising concerns about how would this work, right, what do you think about just establishing um, a congressional inquiry to try to understand how would it work, Professor Darity? So I think that the idea of having some form of a congressional inquiry or a presidential commission, for that matter, to develop and design appropriate proposals for reparations uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, it was a, a strategy that was pursued as a prelude to the Japanese-American reparations. There was a commission that pr produced a, a very important report that uh, that prompted uh, the development of a plan of reparations for Japanese Americans. And so I, I don't think that that's a bad idea. I do think that H.R. 40 is a terrible piece of legislation. And so I do not view it as providing uh, a stepping stone to a comprehensive reparations plan. And uh, I, I, I don't think I should elaborate at this point, but I would like to refer people to uh, an editorial that Kirsten Mullen wrote for Bloomberg in which she detailed 
the weaknesses in HR 40, and I encourage people to take a look at that. Great, Dr. I don't know, frankly, about the you know the, I haven't studied the, the 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 legislation to which you refer. The general idea, however, of uh, having a commission having some you know deliberation about this it seems to me to be a good idea. Uh, you know, serious people have been thinking about this for a good you know for a, a long period of time. Uh, it seems to me that um, this conversation needs to be going on and uh, reinforced and facilitated along with other uh, conversations. The thing I would say is um, we need to have honest, open discussion in which people really lay their cards on the table. And to the extent that that can be done in government, to the extent that that can be done in our universities, we should, we should take every opportunity um, to do that. One other point, I guess, with, with Professor Darity, when he's talking about the Supreme Court, I, I, I would agree. I don't think that the Supreme Court's rulings are, you know, what the Supreme Court says is a good uh, indication of what the majority of Americans think. Having said that, however, I don't, I, you know, the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans may think things that are completely stupid. I don't take any solace in being with, frankly, a majority. Um, and in my view, we face a, um, you know, a, a, a public opinion that has built within it ideas that are profoundly destructive. I'm with you, Professor Darity. I think that you're absolutely right when you say, listen, what we have to think about is what is appropriate. We need to take into account political realities. We need to take into account maybe what a majority of people think in terms of just, you know, so that we won't be uh, so we won't be sentimental, so that we won't, you know, if, if we want to be realistic and pushing things forward, we have to take everything into account. But when you say that, you know, what ultimately matters is our view of what is right, on that, I would agree with you. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, have forums like this in which people really put their cards uh, on the table. I would say that the existence of forums like this, which are increasing in presence, mm -hmm. is actually another positive indicator of uh, the willingness of more and more Americans to take seriously the idea of reparations. And when I first started working on this about 30 years ago, and I was a reparations skeptic at that point, uh, I thought not that I didn't think reparations was a bad idea. I just thought it was something that would never happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and as I was asked to write uh, an an introduction for a volume called The Wealth of Races by an economist named Richard America, mm -hmm. uh, that's really his name, Richard F. America, and mm -hmm. uh, and and he insisted that I write the introduction despite my skepticism. Uh, and I, I think there was some method in his madness because as I read the essays that were contribute contributions to that volume, I began to say to myself, well, 
it doesn't really matter how hard this is going to be to to make happen. It's it's so much the right thing that I'm going to uh, invest my time and energy and research skills in an effort to to try to design an appropriate program and and push for it. Um, and it was at that point that I said, well, you, if you think about previous points in time, say it was 1817 in the United States, you might be convinced that slavery would never come to an end. But would that be a justification for not opposing it? And, and my answer was, of course not. It would not be a justification for not opposing it, just being pessimistic about the prospects of it happening. And so that's, that's how I got on the path to, to thinking about reparations. Our, I want to remind our, our, our trajectories are interesting because I, I guess my the trajectory of my thinking is the flip of yours. Okay. So I think that I think that you know 25 years ago I would have been much more uh, embracing of reparationist logic and the reparationist you know feeling. Uh, and I think that over time I've 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 gone away from that and 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 more claimed by like I say um, uh, redistributionist distributive justice or to put it a little different way if we have two people in if I have two people in front of me and one person is in need because of, you know, I don't know, they, they, they just came to these shores. They just washed up on these shores, but they are in deep need. I want a polity that responds to their need. Why? Because they are in need. Now, person number two is in need as well, but their need is linked to a history of racial oppression in America. I want to know, I mean, you know, inquiring minds want to know. I want to know about the history of these two needs. But what's ultimately grabbing me is the, the need of both. And it's, it's, it's that issue of need that grabs me more than the issue of the history of the need. And I guess what concerns me is, in at least with some reparationists, I get the sense that it's the, it's the history of the need that actually is more important than the present sense of desperate need itself. Well, again, I don't start with the scarcity principle that you're adopting, that you have to make a choice between supporting people in these two different sets of circumstances. But what I do think is it should be different types of uh, of resources that should be forthcoming under each set of circumstances. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's not solely the historical record that's at play. It's the consequences of that historical record for the living individuals. And so from my standpoint, it's a question of justice that I'm trying to address. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it requires an investigation of the, the reasons why individuals are in the conditions that they are today if one is trying to be concerned about uh, creating a more just and fair society.
So I do want to remind our participants that they can ask questions. I want to go to some of the questions now. One interesting question was about reparation proposals that had been presented to UNC for the descendants of slaves um, who were owned by the university. And for me, that's actually a question about the level at which reparations has to take place. Right? Is it possible for state or local government or smaller entities, Asheville, the city of Asheville, for example, agreed to engage in some sort of reparation work um, you know, in that for their town, is it possible for smaller entities to do that work? Or is this something that has to be done at a federal level, something that has to be done with um, wide consensus about how to move forward? It depends heavily on what the objective is. And, and since I'm committed to the view that a reparations project must be designed in such a way that it eliminates the racial wealth differential in the United States by building the assets that are possessed by black Americans to a level that is similar to the average level that is held by white Americans, then state and local initiatives are simply not going to do the trick. Uh, individual initiatives or private organizations' actions are not going to take, turn the trick either. Uh, I think people may not fully appreciate how large a number $14 trillion is. So let me, let me give two, two illustrations that might be useful. If, if generous donors put $1 billion into a fund for reparations on a monthly basis, so $12 billion per annum, and, and the typical university that is engaged in some act of atonement is usually talking about no more than $100 million. And most of the cities that are doing something like Evanston or Providence, Rhode Island, are talking about $10 million. Okay, If, if generous donors put $1 billion into a fund on a monthly basis, it would take a millennium to get to $14 trillion. Okay. If we think about the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States, that comes to less than $5 trillion. I'm talking about a bill, again, of $14 trillion. And so it is only the federal government that has the capacity to fund a project on that scale to address a longstanding historical injustice in the United States. Okay, you have any points of convergence there or divergence? I guess my question would be: um, Are there some are there are there some things that are so large that they are beyond our capacity to rectify? I mean, you you just talked about how how big that was, how you know how much money. Yeah. Does this mean so, then? I mean, I, I think I, frankly, I kind of think of. You know, um, would it be, just suppose it took everything in the United States, all assets, all assets, would you be willing to devote all assets in the United States to the addressing of the, the you know, the, 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 the victimization of African Americans? Well, you know, there are people who have argued for numbers much, much higher than the one that I've talked about. Uh, you know, uh, if you were to talk to Thomas Kramer at the University of Connecticut, he would probably say that my $14 trillion figure is a low ball 
mm-hmm. on the amount that would be required to close the racial mm-hmm. wealth gap. And he would say it's probably 17 to $19 trillion. He's also been the architect of another estimate uh, that he does not personally say should be used, but a lot of people have seized upon it, which is the amount of time that was stolen from the enslaved. Uh, a, a, uh, an economic value assigned to the amount of time that was stolen from the pe- persons who were enslaved, and that essentially 24 hours a day was, was stolen time. And that estimate comes to $6.2 quadrillion. Uh, I would not advocate trying to pay $6.2 quadrillion to anyone, uh, in part because the inflationary consequences would be so severe that the worth of the money that you've given people would be eliminated overnight. So, uh, so yes, there is a ceiling on the amount that I would think is, is justifiable. Uh, but $14 trillion is manageable, given the United States government's response to the events of the Great Recession and to the pandemic. Uh, okay. And so, you would not necessarily have to pay the $14 trillion out at one time. You could do it. I wouldn't want to do it any longer than a decade, but you could spread the money out across the course of a decade. And that would be an entirely manageable project for the federal government. Okay, but, but, but you just have, cons- you, but you have acknowledged that manageability is part of your calculus. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a famous observation that Frederick Douglass made many years ago. You know, he said it would be impossible to come up with an amount that would truly compensate the formerly enslaved for the horrors that they had been subjected to. But he said, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. So uh, we've had some questions about logistics, and one is, Professor Darity, do you believe that if you got the number you wanted, it would actually close that gap? And how would that gap stay closed, assuming discrimination endures? So, uh, I, you know, once again, I, I, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I certainly, you know, I'm an advocate of continuing to work to eliminate discrimination. Uh, but the key factor that produces the racial wealth gap is the uh, is the unequal intergenerational transmission of resources between black blacks and whites. And what a reparations plan would do of the type that I'm describing is it would interrupt that unequal distribution of resources. So the question then is, is there some reason to think that the racial wealth gap might reopen? Uh, and there are some people who have argued that that's a possibility. Uh, I would say that's only something to worry about if, in fact, the reason why it reopens is because of atrocities that have been directed to uh, against black Americans, in which case you reopen the case for reparations. Um, and so you would have to ultimately eliminate the factors that produce the racial wealth gap to be able to have a sustainable reparations program where you could meet the third condition in our definition, which is closure. Mr. Ken, any thoughts about that? I mean, I'm already hearing you. 
<laughs> already hearing a potential uh, response about the difficulty we have as Americans about deciding what the source of problems are, right? And so how would we come to consensus that a reopen gap might be due to state sanction, discrimination, or racial subordination? No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have any further to add on that point. <laughs> so, um, so we had a question about thinking about reparations as sentimental, um, and this goes back to this question about stigma and how we think about different groups. Um, and so, is there is language like that signaling something about how we think about the how meritorious each group is? Would we use words like sentimental for thinking about Holocaust survivors and their descendants, right, or the descendants of people who were interned because they were Japanese? And this is really a question about rhetoric, right? How how important is rhetoric here? I mean, what does that tell us about the feasibility of this project? Well, you know, there there are people who have said don't use the term reparations because that uh, raises some people's hackles. Find another term. And, and my response is, I'm not trying to do this out of any course of deception. I want this to happen because the vast majority of Americans agree that it is something that should happen. And so we will try to persuade people with the language that is as honest as possible. I respect that a great deal, Professor Darity. I really do. I, I think, you know, transparency. In that spirit, let me ask you a question. I've what about, so how do you deal with people who have done well? Let's suppose that their folks, like my folks in South Carolina, were enslaved, but over time, for various reasons, they've done extremely well. Do they get the benefit of reparations even though they have now done extremely well yeah well i i said earlier reparations is not an anti-poverty program it is not needs-based in terms of the criteria for eligibility okay. it is meant for the individuals who are the black descendants of persons who were enslaved in the united states and, so Oprah, uh, yeah, people did, yes, reparations Oprah would, would be perfectly eligible. LeBron James would be perfectly eligible. Okay. If these individuals chose not to receive reparations, then that's their discretion. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, when reparations was paid to victims of the Holocaust, no one asked how well they were doing financially in that moment. When reparations were paid to Japanese Americans who had been unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II, no one asked how they were doing at that particular moment. That was not a factor that was involved in providing restitution for the harms that they had been subjected to. And the fact that a living black American might be doing fairly well financially does not mean they have not been subjected to the harms of white supremacy. No, it, it doesn't, and I, I would agree with that. Um, the thing about history is so funny. I mean, how would you deal with the person who would say, you're absolutely right, and, you know, most of the time, uh, 
oppression has very destructive consequences. We all know, however, that, you know, social life is funny. Um, there were some very beautiful things that were the upshot of, you know, atrocity. So the blues, beautiful. Yes. Jazz, blues. Yes, and one that's exactly right. And so, you know, what a, you know, so if one were to say, um Well, I mean living black Americans too. Many of us who are living black Americans would not be here at all if it was not for the rapes that our ancestor foremothers were subjected to. So you could say that there are some things that are beneficial outcomes of atrocities, but that doesn't mean that the kinds of economic conditions and differential opportunities that are associated with the racial wealth gap is not something that affects virtually all black Americans today adversely. And that's what I'm focused on. I'm not focused on the question of cultural products and the like. I'm focusing on the question of differences in the capacity to exercise full citizenship in the United States that are anchored on monetary differences in resources. So uh, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to invite each of you to get a final word about the topic before we close. Professor Darity? Um, I, I just, first of all, just let me say I'm grateful for, uh, for this event, uh, for the conversation with Professor Kennedy. For, for your, uh, your active and, and gracious moderation, uh, and that I'm hoping that it is conversations like this that continue to uh, produce an opportunity for people to think about reparations in a way in which they may not have in the past, in a more positive way that they may not have in the past. So uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to join you all in this conversation. Let me echo, I'd, I'd like to echo what uh, Professor Darity uh, just said. Um, I think it's been a, you know, interesting and useful conversation. Uh, differences have been voiced and, you know, people have given their best insofar as trying to address uh, their, their differences. I also want to end by giving a tip of the hat uh, to Professor Darity. He has, for a long period of time, been focused on this subject and has very patiently and carefully sought to respond to uh, all sorts of uh, critics. And I really respect him for being so patient and so calm and so comprehensive in his efforts at responding uh, to his critics. Uh, you know, not everybody is going to agree about things. And they're going to be perfectly responsible, sensible people who are going to disagree. And, you know, intellectual, intellectual work should be about trying to persuade people based on evidence, based on argument. And I think that the Professor Darity has really been exemplary in uh, showing uh, how that's done. So I too want to thank, uh, want to thank our host, thank our moderator, and I very much appreciate being part uh, of this forum.
I echo both of your sentiments and thank you both for joining us. I also want to thank our participants for joining us tonight. Please don't forget that the survey to take out to, to fill out if you've enjoyed this programming. Um, so, and the recording of this event is going to be available on YouTube. I hope you all join us again for our conversations in the future. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Kirsten is a writer, a folklorist, a museum consultant, and a lecturer whose, lecturer whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. And William is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. And based upon what I've seen, I would describe them as partners in justice who should be recognized as the foremost experts on reparations for Black Americans. Kirsten and William have they got their own program. They got their own running show. So I'm going to let them do their thing. I'm going to turn my camera off for a moment. I may pop in and out and ask some questions, but I'm going to let them do their thing. So thank you all for being here. And Kirsten and William, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Langston. Um, we are so appreciative of this invitation and the opportunity to speak with you and to uh, the audience that you have convened. Um, you know, across the country and, and, and perhaps the world. Um, so we were asked to talk a little bit about our origin stories and about the origins, uh, the origins of the book from Here We Fall. And um, yeah, we both grew up in families that I would describe as race families. Uh, we used to joke in my household that race was a member of the family. It was talked about every day, almost at every meal. Uh, I grew up in segregated Texas, Fort Worth, to be specific. Um, my life changed dramatically in third grade when my mother put me in um, a majority white parochial school. Uh, but we lived in a black community, segregated black community. Um, um, you know, this was a time when uh, in Texas, um, you know, there was work for black people. But you did not have the kind of integration, the kind of influence, the kind of authority um, that uh, Blacks had even in, you know, the North or even other Southern cities. And, um, you know, my mother was very active politically. My grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a minister. He was a, a lifelong NAACP uh, member, uh, was very uh, determined that his congregation become members of the NAACP, the faith that they not just talk, but that they act on their, uh, their convictions. And that's something that I grew up with. Um, I also was very aware um, when I began to go to this majority white school and was invited uh, into the homes of my white classmates that there's a tremendous uh, difference in terms of the sort of material um, what do you call that? They the, the um, you know, just the, the kind of lives that they were living, the material stuff of their lives. And, um, you know, I came from a, a working, um, you could say, sort of upper lower, you know, upper lower class community. But these are hardworking folks, you know, who had two and three jobs, my mother included. Um, and so I knew that it wasn't a case of the black people I knew not working hard. You know, uh, it was not a case. Uh, they're not being smart. It wasn't a case that they were spending their money unwisely. Um, so there was something fundamentally wrong. <laughs> I can remember bringing those questions to, you know, to the table, to the to the, to the dinner table at my household. So um, 
And then when our first child was born, uh, uh, my, uh, my grandfather on my, my father's side uh, said something to me that didn't really strike me at the time. Uh, when we presented our infant, uh, his great-grandson, uh, he said he pronounced him the fifth generation. And I didn't quite, you know, understand what he meant. And I didn't ask him uh, at the time what he meant. But what he was what he was referring to was the fact that he was the fifth, he was part of the fifth generation born um, after, after slavery. <laughs> and um, so on my father's side, I am the fourth generation. But on my mother's side, I'm actually the third. Uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, Harriet Tyler Farrell Mitchell, uh, is the daughter, or was, she's now deceased, but she was the daughter of, of, of someone who had, was born in slave. And my children knew her, you know, into their adulthood. So if you're looking at slavery from a generational um, vantage point, uh, slavery was not that far, uh, not that long ago in my family. Uh, my grandmother knew her father. Uh, she grew up with him. And so uh, it was not a mystery to her. Uh, you know, knowing someone who had been born enslaved. In my family, on my mother's side, uh, my great-grandmother was the daughter of two people who had been enslaved on Rose Hill Plantation in North Carolina, and, uh, and I knew her. Uh, I think I was about eight or nine years of age when she, when she finally passed. Uh, but I had had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with her in Wilson, North Carolina, particularly sitting on my grandmother's porch. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, from that standpoint, uh, when I was the fourth generation from slavery and our son's the fifth. And I'm pretty much convinced that that's also the case on my father's side of the family, although there's some uncertainty about whether or not my great grandparents were enslaved or whether it was my great great grandparents that's that's something that we haven't completely determined but i know on my mother's side that i'm the fourth generation from slavery so i think that's been important in terms of the way in which Kirsten and i have thought about this project um, i'd like to give you a more accurate story about the evolution of the book though uh, <laughs> The first edition of From Here to Equality was published in 2020, uh, and the second edition just last year, the paperback edition that includes a new preface. Uh, but we had been working on the book for a decade before it was finally published, uh, and that's a story unto itself. Uh, you know, I think what we we basically completely revised, revamped a couple of versions of the manuscript before we were satisfied. Uh, but the ideas in the book are, are present in a number of things that we wrote prior to that. Uh, and one, one example is the criterion for eligibility or the criteria for eligibility, which are, are laid out explicitly in a paper that was published in 2003 in the American Economic associations proceedings and so um, you know I think that the ideas that we we develop in the book are definitely present in materials that we had written before then. Yeah, I, I, you can to your um, your efforts as the 
um, the writer of an introduction of a collection of essays on reparations. Yeah, so in 1989, Richard America, yeah, and that's really his name, Richard America asked me to write the preface to a book that he was editing called The Wealth of Races. And this was the collection of essays by economists who were attempting to calculate how much reparations should be paid uh, to the descendants of the enslaved. And um, and I, my reaction at the time, I was a reparation skeptic. And so I, I, my reaction at the time was, uh, well, Richard, this is never going to happen. Why are we investing our time in doing this? It's a, it's a waste of time. And, and Richard said, uh, if you want to say that after you read the materials, if you want to say that in your introductory essay, you know, feel free to do so. Uh, so I think he was somewhat prescient and he knew uh, he knew something about what my reaction would be. And once I started reading the essays, I became so convinced that this was something that was the right thing to do, that it was really the only way to really alter the conditions that are faced by uh, living black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, that even if the odds were extremely long, it was something that we would have to work towards and do. And so I think my first major piece personally on reparations was the uh, the introduction to the volume that, that Richard America uh, produced. And then I guess you and I did a paper together, an, an op-ed at one point for The Root. I don't know, that's a, what, maybe 2008 maybe. At, the, at the latest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, so, so I'd say there's a window of about 30 years where the, the two of us have been thinking about and working on these issues and, and publishing material about it. So yeah. maybe we'll first pivot, you know, to the formal the formal presentation. presentation. Okay. So maybe if you yeah. Okay. So um, so um, so Langston, you you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we came on, you mentioned uh, the effects of the of the pandemic. Uh, not only in creating your program, but also in altering the amount of time that people devote to podcasts, their attentiveness, their interest in these kinds of issues. And um, when when our book came out in 2020, it coincided with the formal or official onset of the pandemic. I, we're convinced that the disease was present in the United States at least. Uh, by the latter part of the of 2019, but uh, but uh, we were also uh, then compelled to think about the relationship between 2019 and the arguments for reparations. And so, briefly, uh, we are going to start our discussion this evening with a focus on the sets of arguments that have been raised in opposition to reparations. Uh, and, uh, but, but I also want to emphasize that the relationship between reparations and COVID-19 is something that we have to pay close attention to. Uh, excess COVID-19 black mortality for us, reinforce the importance of reparations. 
we did an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquiry Inquirer that was published in April 20, uh, April on April 20th, 2020, uh, and in in that piece uh, we had we reported that in North Carolina blacks were 22% of the state's population, but 32% of the confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 37% of the deaths from COVID-19 in Mecklenburg County, the county that includes Charlotte, North Carolina. Blacks constituted about 31% of the population at that time, but 44% of the cases of COVID-19 and half of the deaths from COVID-19. In the state of Louisiana, where Black Americans made up about 33% of the population, 70% of the confirmed deaths, more than twice as many people uh, in the population proportionately, uh, were Black. So. Uh, Excess mortality was attributable to blacks being over-concentrated in occupations with high degrees of exposure to the virus, attributable to blacks having a disproportionately high number of pre-existing conditions as a residue, a vicious residue of racial inequality in the United States, and these would include asthma, diabetes, and hypertension, although we argue that the fundamental pre-existing condition is a resources gap, which is best captured by the black-white wealth differential, wealth inequality. Blacks represent about, black American descendants of US slavery represent about 12% of the population, but possess less than 2% of the nation's wealth. And that results in a gap of about $840,000 in difference in net worth between the average black and white household. So we'd like to read some from from Here's Equality um, to kind of frame you know the argument that we're making and also to kind of help all of us get on the same page to have this conversation together. So um, we say the following: From here to equality draws a thick line from the nation's origins to the present. The case we build in this volume is based on all three tiers or phases of injustice, slavery, American apartheid or Jim Crow, and the combined effects of present day discrimination and the ongoing deprecation of black lives. Most advocates of black reparations have focused exclusively on the injustices of slavery as the basis for redress. Law professor Boris Bicker argued that the case for black reparations should center solely on the harms of legalized segregation, while Roy L. Brooks, also a legal scholar, has argued that the foundation for black reparations is, quote, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, end quote. We submit that the bill of particulars for black reparations also must include contemporary ongoing injustices. So these are injustices resulting in barriers and penalties for the black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. Um, sociologist Joe Fagan catalogs the conflicting injuries um, on black Americans, including wage penalties, physical and psycho-emotional health wounds, and community and institutional damages. Despite the Brown, the Brown uh, v. Board of Education decision in 1954, a wave of federal legislation in the 1960s and 1970s intended to eliminate legal apartheid in the United States and the enactment of anti-discrimination laws, 
Blacks continue to bear the weight of American racism. That burden is manifest in labor market discrimination, grossly attenuated wealth, confinement to neighborhoods with lower levels of amenities and safety, disproportionate exposure to inferior schooling, significantly greater danger in encounters with the police and the criminal justice system writ large, and a general social disdain for the value of Black people's lives. The, key, the legal apparatus created by the civil rights revolution does little to address the complex web of harms imposed upon Black Americans today. Taken individually, any one of these three tiers of injustice, slavery, the regime of legal segregation and subordination, and current discrimination makes a powerful case for Black reparations. Taken collectively, they are impossible to ignore. Uh, in our book, we attempt to offer a conceptual definition of reparations, and I'd like to share uh, a passage from the book in which we uh, elaborate on what reparations should mean in general. And then we talk about its application to the specific case of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. So we say the following. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimina discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of any effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrongs by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole to be represented in principle by the national government. A national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed, but beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Now, redress is the second component of our concept of reparations, and this involves restitution for the damages that have been incurred uh, by the, the victimized community. And this would mean in the context of, uh, of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery that uh, the federal government would make a concerted effort to eliminate the racial wealth differential in the United States. Now, we mentioned a moment ago that that comes to approximately $840,000 per household, uh, collectively, this would require an expenditure in excess of $14 trillion by the federal government. And we argue that that's the minimum amount that redress should take. It's similar to the way in which redress has been conducted for other victimized communities. That is to say, a direct payment to the eligible recipients, whether we're talking about the reparations plan that was provided for Japanese Americans who were subjected to unjust incarceration during the course of World War II, or uh, the German government's payments to victims of the Holocaust. Now, the third component, closure, 
involves an agreement on the part of the culpable party, in this case, the United States government, and uh, the black American population that would be eligible for reparations, that the debt has been paid satisfactorily. Uh, and so at, at that point, the account would be settled and uh, black Americans would proceed uh, to not make any further claims on the United States government for compensation unless, unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or new types of atrocities are directed against that community. So we want to talk a bit briefly about some of the um, some of the claims that people make uh, you know, in opposition for, um, to reparations. And um, you know, one of those that we hear frequently is uh, well, first of all, just this whole concept, this whole question, this notion of slavery reparations. Um, I mean, as we've said, we're not talking simply about slavery. I mean, slavery is the whole from which everything you know, it's a, uh, you know, which everything's uh, the catalyst from which everything sprung. But we're talking not just about slavery, but also about, you know, 100 years, you know, nearly 100 years of legal segregation and white terror campaigns, and also about, you know, all of the injustices, all the atrocities and harms that are, are still happening today. It's not as if we've ever reached the point where, where um, those kinds of atrocities cease. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the second edition, we had used the language reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And we changed it in the second edition to conciliation. Exactly. Because there was never any previous moment of right. uh, uh, of conciliation between uh, between blacks and whites in the United States. I mean, we're talking about the fact that black people have never been fully admitted as citizens in this country. And that is something that could have happened at the end of the Civil War, at uh, the point of emancipation, but it did not. Uh, and it actually has not happened uh, to this day. Uh, but another point of opposition that I'd like to discuss briefly, uh, we hear you know, people say, well, why didn't white America or American in general, uh, or didn't white America or white American in general already pay its debt for slavery in blood by waging the Civil War, which resulted in emancipation? Um, you know, we, you know, some of you may be aware that um, um, you know, then House GOP uh, coverage chair Mike Pence said, this was in 2009, I don't believe there should be reparations. You know, then, then he identifies himself uh, as a student of American history uh, and asserts that well, reparations were paid in the lives of 600,000 Americans who fell on both sides in the Civil War. Well, Pence fails to acknowledge that nearly half of those people fighting, the Confederates, were fighting to maintain slavery, <laughs> not to end it. Um, enslaved black people were freed not because of white, not because white Confederates uh, liberated them. They were freed because the Union military forces, which included more than 180,000 black men and women, won the war. Um, some contend that blacks already had received uh, reparations in the form of Obama, uh, Barack Obama's election as the 44th president of the United States. Um, you had Pence and uh, Senate Majority uh, Leader then Mitch McConnell making this claim uh, at the same time, time period, even though the majority of white Americans voted against Obama, 39% of whites compared with 90% of blacks and 71% of Latinx, if by black reparations you mean the elimination of the huge gulf in black-white wealth, which we do advise, Obama's election for all of its salutary effects did not significantly move that needle. 
Um, you know, you had, uh, again, Mike Pence talking about, uh, you know, re Republican policy initiatives with regard to economics and health care and energy issues. Uh, but in fact, none of this translated into uh, material advantages or full citizenship for Black people. Um, so back to this notion that slavery was not so long ago. Um, you know, we memorialize plantations across the American South. It's a very big business. Um, you know, wedding destinations, family reunions. You know, all too often the central essential Black presence on those plantations is downplayed or the institution of slavery is described as benign, or that Blacks were delighted by the association. Uh, this notion that slavery is not so distant falls away when one looks at the institution from a generational standpoint. Um, we include um, uh, stories of, uh, from one of our favorite uh, uh, consultants, Hortense McClinton, um, who is the daughter of an enslaved person. So this is a living person. She's what, 104? She's 104 now. 104 years old now. Uh, we spoke to her about 10 days ago on the phone. She had called us to discuss, uh, you know, some of the recent uh, events related to the, um, the January 6th uh, hearing. congressional hearing. Um, but yes, her father, Sebron James King, was an infant when slavery ended. So he was born enslaved. Yeah, he was uh, born in January, January 1865. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she is one of at least four people that we learned about over the course of researching from Here to Equality who were the children of people who were enslaved, including my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother. Um, you know, another uh, of these 21st century children of enslaved Black Americans is Ruth Odom Bonner, whose father, Elijah Odom, was born enslaved in Mississippi and later would become a physician. Um, his daughter, Ruth, became active in the civil rights movement in her hometown of Cleveland. Um, we remember her because the Smithsonian Institution and then President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama invited her and members of their family, three generations of their family, to ring the freedom bell at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture in September 2016. Um, that bell had originally graced Williamsburg, Virginia's first um, Baptist church which was founded by Blacks in 1776, quote, in defiance of local law, end quote. But, you know, if we wait long enough, all Black Americans whose parents were enslaved and all who lived through nearly 100 years of racial apartheid in this country will have died. Um, but the atrocities keep coming, and that is why we need a program of reparations for Black Americans. Yeah, we think that these atrocities are well encapsulated in um, measures of the devaluation of black lives. And so there's a section of the book in which we actually attempt to provide numerical estimates of the magnitude of the devaluation of black lives. So folks in the Black Lives Matter movement could have taken a further step by actually attempting to demonstrate what the measurable values are of the magnitude at which black lives have been discounted in American society. Uh, so let, 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 let me share again from the text. There are a number of ways in which numerical estimates can be placed on the differential value assigned to black versus white lives in the United States. For example, as early as the 1840s, New York life typically insured whites for anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, while enslaved Blacks 
typically were insured on behalf of their owners for no more than $400 and sometimes for as little as $200. It has been estimated that in 1928, there was one hospital bed for every 139 white Americans, but only one for every 1,941 black Americans indicating that the average black life was worth only 7% of the average white life. During the Jim Crow years, when the dual system of schooling operated, the gap in per pupil expenditures provides a powerful index of the magnitude of the discount rate on black lives. For example, in 1939 to 1940, per pupil expenditures for white students in most of the southern states were three times more than they were for black students, suggesting that a young black life was worth about 30% of a young white life. In Mississippi, per pupil expenditures were seven times greater, suggesting that in Mississippi at that time, a young black life was worth 15% of a young white life. In Alabama in 1912, and Kirsten discovered this, uh, the document with this, this evidence in it in, in a California. Right, the California African American Museum of History. Yeah, in Los yeah, Angeles. In Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So in Alabama in 1912, a cluster of counties spent 32 cents on black students' education per every $15 spent on white students' education, implying that a white youth's life was deemed to be worth an incredible 4,700% more than a black youth's life. Today, the estimated difference in spending per black and white student is reduced substantially, although a 13% gap remains. Unfortunately, the narrowing of the spending gap disguises a profound racial gap in curriculum and instruction in a world of desegregated schools. The disparity in the rate of placement of black students in gifted and talented programs provides a marked indicator of the devaluation of black youth in the nation's educational system. Black and Latinx students constitute 40% of America's public school students, but only 26% of the students enrolled in gifted and talented programs. The average black child is 66% less likely to be referred for gifted math and reading than their white classmates. A final indicator that we discuss of the devaluation of black lives concerns the rates at which uh, black men are killed by the police relative to the rates at which white men are killed by the police. And black men are killed at three times the rate of white men in each year, implying once again that black lives are worth one third of white lives. We do want to talk a bit about our police about white prosperity. Yes. Okay. That's a good suggestion. Uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe, maybe you should read this section of the okay. book, but uh, the American public, when we talk about the importance of the racial wealth gap, it's also valuable to note that the American public has no idea how large that gap is. In fact, the American public generally doesn't have any idea how large the disparities are between blacks and whites. So there are many, many Americans who are walking around on the assumption that uh, either 
blacks have caught up with whites or are actually doing better than whites on most of the material indicators that are relevant to the quality of our lives. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we should try to conclude, try to include some other um, claims, some other similar forms of opposition in, oh. in, the, in the interest of time. Okay. Okay. So, you know, one of the, the problems, uh, in addition to the federal government's um, uh, decision to renege on those 40-acre land grants that were promised to the newly emancipated white people at the end of the Civil War, um, while simultaneously providing 160-acre land grants to white Americans, uh, including uh, recent immigrants from Europe. So basically, the federal government was investing in the wealth of white Americans while actively de-investing. Uh, you know, in the wealth of black people. Uh, so not only did the federal government uh, not make good on its promise to give black people a leg up, you know, to give them a grub stake, uh, to help them along that road to full citizenship, um, it also did not uh, punish the traitors. It did not punish the rebels. It did not punish the secessionists uh, as uh, initially um, was expected. Um, and so we want to uh, want to read a little bit more from our book uh, from Here Equality and talk about you know what the radicals, the radical Republicans uh, expected, and indeed what many many of the Southerners expected, the you know the defeated South, uh, what they expected in terms of the requirements for them to be readmitted to the Union. Um, so the radicals. Uh, we say in, in, from Here Equality in Lincoln's party had no compunction about labeling the rebels as traitors. Uh, the radical Republicans were seeking a comprehensive, and this is our term, deconfederatization of the American South. Uh, I quote uh, the radicals, abolish, yes, abolish everything on the face of the earth but this union. Free every state, slay every traitor, burn every rebel mansion. If these things be necessary to preserve this temple of freedom to the world and to our posterity. So this was the rallying cry of Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, he was the conscience of the radicals. Uh, and this is what he, uh, the argument that he raised during the speech he gave when he won renomination for his congressional seat in 1862. Um, but there have been numerous incidences um, where, you know, um, Southern American soldiers, and not just Southerners, uh, Northerners as well, have flown the Confederate flag uh, in the 20th and 21st century battle sites of Vietnam, the Gulf War, Iraq. Um, you know, the flag, you know, until recently was quite ubiquitous in many public places. And some of you may have seen, you know, no small number of individuals who uh, stormed the, the Capitol on January 6, 2021, uh, carrying Confederate flags and wearing um, Confederate insignia. Um, so, you know, this, 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 um, this, this infatuation with the Confederacy is very much with us. And this is very different from what you see uh, in Germany, for example, um, where, uh, you know, it, it did not happen immediately, um, you know, where the government decided that they needed to, uh, to censor the Nazis and to remove from public spaces the symbols of Nazism. Uh, but that it, it hasn't happened here yet. Um, you know, we haven't had a, a, a movement to this day to, um, to say that this is not who we are as Americans. This is not where our values lie. Uh, in fact, our actions uh, 
you know, basically say the opposite, that we value the Confederacy, that we that this lost cause ideology is something that all of us share, which is absolutely not true. But until we have a formal official, um, you know, um, removal mm-hmm. of these uh, symbols, uh, when we are no longer talking about these people as patriots, we are no longer memorializing them uh, as heroes, uh, you know, then and only then will we be able to move uh, you know, in a positive direction in terms of full citizenship for Black Americans and for U.S. slavery. Uh, to conclude our presentation, I think it's important to say that if you can imagine a future, that's an important step on creating in creating that future. And so one of the tasks of our book was to provide a plan for reparations so that we could aid in the process of building that imagined future and bring it into fruition. So we think reparations for Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States is achievable, and it is just as important today as it was at the end of the Civil War. And so as a consequence, we'd like to point uh, those of you who are in the audience and other folks who will listen to this uh, podcast in the future to Chapter 13 of our book, where we outline how reparations can be done and how reparations should be done. And we'll also like to refer you to the preface for the new paperback edition of the book, where we also present a more compact version of our plan that we discussed in Chapter 13, and where we also reject H.R. 40 as a route to true reparations, and we reject this wave of piecemeal local reparations initiatives, and we put reparations in air quotes here as a route to true reparations. So we welcome your your questions and comments. All right, everybody. So uh, Kirsten and William, thank you again for coming. I wanna open this opportunity to folks in the audience who have questions. Um, There's one in particular, I, I believe the brother's name is Craig, who wrote it, and he talked about uh, a skit that, what's what's the comedian's name, Patrice O'Neill did years ago before he passed away, where he talked about how, you know, black folks shouldn't have to pay taxes, and maybe that should be a form of reparation, and I remember back in high school, I had a great teacher, Ms. Sachs, who taught this multicultural studies course, and we had a debate about this in my class, like how should you know, reparations occur. And I was like, yo, I don't want to ever pay taxes ever again. And I actually think we had a technology to do it. So I would like to get you all's thoughts on um, another argument or proposal for, you know, our reparations being that, you know, Black folks maybe not having to pay tax or the descendants of slaves in the United States not having to pay taxes, uh, I would say in perpetuity. So that would not be adequate to eliminate the racial wealth gap. And that's because our tax burden, particularly at the federal level, is tied to our income levels. And our income is uh, reduced discriminatorily 
by the way in which structural racism operates in this society. And there are a significant number of black people whose incomes are so low they don't have any tax obligation whatsoever, so they would receive absolutely nothing from a reparation scheme of that type. That's about 40%. That's right. That's right. All black people don't earn enough the, to even to pay, pay taxes. taxes. So, uh, so, so we do think that the monies that people receive under a reparations plan should be tax free, but we don't think uh, a a zero tax policy for Black Americans is a way in which reparations should be delivered. And Danica Carey has a question about getting – how do you get – how do you get – I'm, I'm going to quote her directly, okay? She says, it sounds like reparations are tied to the country being an agreement and acknowledgement and a willingness to change. What do you feel are the strongest steps and movements towards getting the country to collectively acknowledge and being willing to change? Or is that even necessary? No, oh, it definitely is necessary. It <laughs> definitely is necessary. Black people can't make reparations happen uh, by themselves. If, if that were the case, it would have already happened. Right. Um, you know, we don't have the numbers, but um, you know, we are encouraged by. And we don't have the weapons. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay. Um, we are encouraged by the the changes of in opinion that um, that that have been uh, evidenced through polls. Polling. So uh, in 2000, um, only 4% of white Americans thought that some kind of monetary payment to black Americans was uh, reasonable. 4%. Uh, about 16 years later, that number had jumped almost to 16%, so almost a percentage point a year. Um, then um, the most recent data, this is like for this year, for this current year. Uh, we're now looking at what 30. It's about 30 percent. About 30 percent. So you know, not a hundred, not a majority, but that's a tremendous increase over four percent. Um, and when you're looking at millennials, you're you're looking at you know a little bit over half think that reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery is a, is a positive thing and it should happen. So you know, we don't have you know a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to, to, to happen in the future, but we are very much encouraged that conversations like this are continuing to happen. Um, you know, we have short attention spans in this country, uh, and yet this conversation has been, you know, ongoing for a number of years. Since 2019. Since 2019. Yeah. It's going strong. Um, you know, there are more uh, people who are trying to wrap their brains around what it is, what it isn't. You know, uh, you know I can remember when we were not being shouted down by people in the audience. Um, oh, yes. Uh, and when people began to say, all right, so let's just say if maybe this were to happen, you know, how would we do it? And we thought, oh, Eureka. <laughs> you know, now we can talk about process. Now we can talk about a strategy. Uh, but there was a long time when people just, you know, didn't want to hear any of this. And who do you think you are? And you know, um, take that somewhere else. So um, we are very much encouraged. Um, and, you know, I think people are also beginning to have a better understanding of our shared history. We certainly have learned a tremendous amount about American history uh, 
in the process of writing from here equality. And we continue to learn. Uh, we're, we're looking now at the 100 plus massacres, white terror campaign basically, that took place from reconstruction to through the end of World War II. Um, and these were situations in which, um, you know, black people who are uh, exercising the vote um, and beginning to take office, public office at every level. Um, and this is at a point when, you know, black people for the most part were registered as Republicans uh, and they and their white allies were very active. Uh, you know, black people were delighted to be able to participate in American political life in this way. But this was also a point when many of the Democrats, white Southerners especially, who were unwilling to swear an oath of allegiance to the United States were disenfranchised. And rather than accept that or uh, agree to uh, pledge, you know, pledge their fealty, pledge their support to the United States, they said, well, we're going we're to handle this another way. <laughs> and so they began to insult and intimidate and threaten uh, and then murder these Black political operatives and their white allies. And they burned them out. Uh, many people are aware of the Tulsa massacre. A big reason why people are even aware that there was a Black Wall Street in Tulsa is that white people destroyed it. Um, you know, William, William, uh, Williams, Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898, Tulsa was 1921, is another such place. Uh, but there's also Colfax, Louisiana, 1873, Cushada, Louisiana, 1874. Vicksburg, Mississippi, 1908. No, no 18, 1874. 18, 1874. Vicksburg. Vicksburg. Uh, Atlanta, 1906. 1906 yeah. Fort Bend County, Texas, uh, where my grandfather, my, um, my, you know, my, my mother's father was from, 1889. Yeah. So there have been many, many, many of these. Yeah. Um, you know, where, and they often occurred uh, during the run up to an election. You know, so, you know, the, 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 the white supremacists were not, uh, things didn't look good for them <laughs> on the run-up to the election. They said, well, we'll just, we'll just disperse, you know, the voters. We'll just make sure that, you know, these black Republicans and their white allies don't get to the poll. Or but in the case with Wilmington, when they did not manage to do that on the front end, they said, all right, we'll take care of business on the back end. And in places like... Um, uh, Fort Bend County, Texas, um, you had white rule from the point of those massacres for the next 64, 65 years. This was the case in Wilmington as well. Edgefield, uh, Edgefield County, South, South Carolina, Carolina. They, 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 they took over the courthouse and stuffed the ballot box so that there were, what, 2,700 more votes cast than there were than people, were people who were eligible to vote. vote. Uh, yeah. yeah, so people talk about voter fraud. Uh, you know, the white, long, yeah. white Democrats in the 19th century were the architects oh, yeah. of voter fraud. Now, we should point out, uh, because today's Republicans always are trying to claim that they are the part, party of righteousness, the parties have flipped, right. and the uh, the party that now is the repository of the spirit of the Confederacy is the Republican Party. I see D.L. Grant mentioned Slocum, Texas, yes. and um, so this is a case where 
what black people were celebrating the victory of Jack Johnson, the boxer, um, over the great white hope, uh, his name Jeffries. James Jeffries. James Jeffries. And many white people were just outraged to see black people celebrating and joyful. And um, Slocum was one of those places where whites just came in and just slaughtered uh, black people. What do they call it? A, 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 pot a, pot, shot, a pot shot. A pot shot moment. affair. A pot shot affair, yeah. A pot shot affair. affair. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. So I want to, um, I think Ashley Adams has a really interesting question. She says, thank you for your work, Kirsten and Williams. And, and Ashley was on uh, another event that I was listening to earlier today, I think. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. <all right. laughs> so so I'm, I'm going to read Ashley's question. When you say reject local reparations, what does that mean for all of the local reparations efforts that are happening across the country, local commissions that are being established? Given your position, do you have any recommendations for how the federal government could work with state and local efforts, do you see value in local work at all? So if, if, these, if these local great initiatives, it, it is a great question. If these local initiatives were um, properly cast, properly labeled as something like racial equity initiatives or atonement programs, uh, we would definitely uh, you know, champion them because these are definitely programs that cities and states need to engage in. Uh, but basically, you're talking about projects and undertakings that need to be done anyway. You know, these are, these are things that should have happened. So, you know, cities that are saying, we're going to focus on um, increasing the contracts that go to black businesses. You know, as an entrepreneur, this is something I imagine that you have been, you know, working on as well. Well, that should have been happening all along. That's not reparation. And, and that, um, that is not compensation, and that's not compensation for the failure to do it. Right. Okay. And we, we have to distinguish right. between ending a harm and compensating for the effects of the harm. And reparations is compensation for the effects of a harm. And the, the states and localities don't have the capacity to, to, to meet that, that, that task. Uh, if we estimate that the amount that's required to eliminate the racial wealth gap is 14 to $15 trillion. The combined budgets of all state and local governments are what? About 3.5 or, or it's definitely less than $5 less than trillion. Dollars. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so they, they don't, they don't have, have the capacity, capacity to do it. but also it's the federal government. That's really the culpable party. I mean, Kirsten talked at some length about, the uh, the failure to provide Black Americans with the 40-acre land grants that they were promised, while at the same time, the federal government was giving one and a half million white families 160-acre right. land grants in the Western territories. She talked about the massacres. Well, one of the artifacts of the massacres was the uh, not not just the taking of Black lives, but the appropriation and seizure of Black-owned property. White folks made it their own property, raised their own wealth while they reduced black wealth. Uh, and in the 20th century, the federal government shifts from land distribution as its asset building process or procedure to home ownership. And then it does that in a highly discriminatory fashion. So, uh, so, so, you know, some people will make the argument like somebody has made here 
that something is better than nothing at all, uh, I think we would disagree that you should not settle for less than you merit. And if you settle for less than you merit, you will never address the fundamental disparities that exist in the society that constrain black lives and black opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I would say to individuals who are in cities or states that are contemplating these so-called reparations plans, you know, try to get involved early and get them to rename these projects, you know, get them to call them racial equity initiatives also, and push for, you yeah. know, push, push, push them, push them as far as you can, you know, focus on mass incarceration, look at health outcomes, look at eminent domain. I mean, that's definitely uh, an issue that is specific, uh, you know, places where, uh, you know, black people were pushed out of their homes and their neighborhoods so that could be built or or convention centers could be built or performance uh, art centers could be built, football, football stadiums, what have you. Um, we're not saying don't push those cases. We're saying that is a separate activity from true reparations. And we see no reason why you can't do both. You know, Focus locally, but also focus federally. Yeah, why and these local why? groups can also make as part of their recommendations after they've dealt with all these other, you know, areas of, of concern that we've or, talked or about. While they're, or while they're doing that, also say, and we support a federal program of true reparations for Black Americans in the U.S. lately. I want to say, you know, Sandy mentioned uh, that through the Homestead Act, 1.5 million white households benefited from that single federal policy. That translates to 45 million current living white Americans who are benefiting from this single free equity program. It's like you know getting a, a dividend check from the government every month. Um, so we know that 25% of all white households have a wealth position of um, $1 million. 25% of all white households, 1 million, and only 4% of blacks. So, you know, the federal government created this racial wealth gap and it maintains it to the advantage of white Americans. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're not saying no, you know, step back and, and, and take nothing. But we're saying don't, just, you know, can we just have a, a nomenclature, you know, conversation and call these, in some cases, like the Evanston, Illinois uh, situation. That's a, a, some of you may be aware of their housing voucher program. That's masquerading as reparations. Just call it a housing voucher program, and and you know expand it. Um, you know I think at the moment the the ceiling for those twenty five thousand dollar grants is is ten million dollars. Push that to the limit. You know get it increased tenfold, but don't call it reparations. Yeah, I think our fear is that if we have this array of piecemeal programs, which intrinsically will fall far short of the objective of closing the racial wealth gap, that people will ultimately say, particularly those who are opposed to reparations will say, well, there's no need for a federal program because you've already got it. And what you will have is something that's wholly inadequate. Yeah. So yeah, why don't the states and localities where there are communities that are very committed to the idea of reparations engage in the project of fighting for the national program. Uh, I would also add that there are limitations to individuals and organizations and corporations attempting to meet the bill also. 
here's the number that we like to we like to to throw out to try to clarify this point. If generous donors put one billion dollars into a fund on a monthly basis for reparations, it would take a millennium to get to fourteen trillion dollars. And that's why we say the federal government has both the capacity and only the federal government has that's the capacity, capacity to do this. Yeah. To do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanna I wanna highlight one person's argument in the chat. I don't think we got to it. And a Adrian is mentioning um, taxation could be a way to solve the issue. I, I don't want to focus on that part, but he says um, everyone that is a black descendant. And so I don't know if Adrian here she means um, everyone who's a black descendant. Period, or just those of us who are the descendants of American slaves. So can y'all talk about maybe some of the tensions that you maybe or maybe didn't encounter between like, yo, all black people should get it or just the black folks who were here during, who were the descendants of those who were enslaved and, and built the, the Americas and, and things like that? So, you know, we believe absolutely that there, black people in this country um, have a, a, a claim uh, to make. All of all of all Black Americans' claims should not be laid at the feet of the U.S. federal government. So our thinking is, if you are, uh, if if you or your ancestors uh, were part of, um, you know, if, if let me say this way, if your ancestors were enslaved or colonized by, um, it, back up. Let's say your origins are from the Caribbean, from Trinidad, from Antigua, from Jamaica, then your claim should go to the UK. If you're from Haiti, the claim should go to France, which is somewhat complicated because Haiti was made to pay reparations to France. And so that money should be given back to Haiti with interest and they should be paid reparations. So you know, we find it um, very. We, you know, we in our um, in our research looking at other reparations organizations, uh, we you know are, have become aware of CARICOM, which is an organization that is fighting for reparations for people uh, of Caribbean descent. And CARICOM does not include in its reparations claim Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Nor should they. But the reverse is also true. We have different histories. Um, and we're talking about the people whose ancestors were denied those 40-acre land grants in the United States. The freedmen. The freedmen. We're talking about the folks whose ancestors, and not just ancestors, and are both part of this, you know, the folks who lived through nearly 100 years of Jim Crow and white terror campaigns in this country. You know, yes, certainly there are atrocities that folks uh, from other parts of diaspora live through, and we salute them. I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. But again, we believe that there is uh, there is a problem when you're trying to lump all these groups together. Yeah. You know, when we look at the successful reparations claims, they have been focused on very specific communities. You know, when you think about the Japanese Americans who were um, unlawfully um, uh, interned during World War II. Initially, they were focused on all of the Japanese 
uh, people of Japanese descent, uh, Japanese American, Americans who were of Japanese descent who had been interned. So not just in the US, but also in Central and South America. But as they got closer to a resolution, they realized that that was not going to fly. And the hope was that they could engage those other folks who had also been interned at some later point, which they did do. Um, but the initial push, the initial redress was only possible because they had focused on Japanese Americans. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at the reparations that were paid to victims of the Holocaust, uh, when you look even at Japanese Americans, people didn't say, oh, well, what about white people from the Caribbean? What about the Native Americans? <laughs> what about Black Americans? What about Black United Americans? Today? <laughs> no, nobody said, nobody that. said that. So, you know, why is it when the potential beneficiaries are Black Americans from U.S. slavery? We have all these groups saying, oh, wait, oh, wait. You know, you have to include all these other groups, you know, um, you know, as well, and at the same time and in the same movement. Uh, so we there, say, there's, uh, the word I'd like to insert here is there's a certain respect Mm. that we have to give a certain degree of dignity to particular claims. And we should not conflate them with claims that might be relevant to other communities' experiences. Mm -hmm. So we, we are getting close to time. Uh, I, I do want to get to this one question before I ask the final question. And I think Fritz um, has a really, really good Good question. Fritz is wondering, uh, what are some sources that you all can talk about, that you all can suggest for people to continue their education about uh, reparations and how we might go about doing that, or just more more information in general about reparations for Black Americans? Well, um, you know, I I think that there's. Uh, you know, the, the, the selfish answer is, you know, please read our book and the new book that's forthcoming that's called The Black Reparations Project, which is an edited volume coming from the University of California Press in May. Uh, but, uh, but there's a host of, of, of works that are really, really pertinent to this subject. Uh, you know, in terms of the work that we've been doing on the massacres, uh, James Lowen's book, Sundown Towns, is excellent. Um, you know, uh, Mercer Baradaran's book on, on uh, the history of black banks and on the so-called black capitalism movement is, is, is excellent. Uh, An I'm, older book, I'd say W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Black, black Reconstruction, Reconstruction. Is, is essential. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, what's the, the book, The Debt? The debt, yeah. Yeah, uh, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna lose the author's name, even though he's really he's famous. He's <laughs> Kirsten's gonna see if she can find it on the source of all information. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, there there there's a lot of literature. Uh, I I will say that there's an article that we did that may be very helpful to folks that is in the spring 2022 issue of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. And it's called The Cumulative Cost of Racism. 
And it's our attempt to critically survey different ways in which people have tried to measure what the amount of a reparations bill should be. Um, and I think there's some important philosophical issues that we try to tackle there. Uh, but that, that might be that might be helpful to folks also. And that's Randall, that, Randall Robbins. Randall Robbins. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it looks like Fritz is already an expert because uh, they, they put Randall Robinson in the chat. And I will say, uh, you know, there was a paper that I mentioned that was in the American Economic Papers and Proceedings that I wrote with Dania Frank that was published in 2003, and it was called The Economics of Reparations. But the first paper that I'm aware of written by an economist on Black reparations was a paper that was published in the same journal in the mid-1970s by Robert Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E, and, and I recommend that people look at that. It was, it's, 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 it's quite good and uh, inspiring in certain ways. So uh, real quick, I want to thank Kirsten and William for coming today. I appreciate you all taking the time to be here with <laughs> us. Those of you who are still typing in the chat. Y'all got questions. Look, I'm going to tell you a lot of the answers to the questions that you all have are in the book. So get the book, check it out. Um, and even some of the critiques that I saw about how do we get the $14, million, $14 trillion and whatnot, $1.4 trillion allocated to um, African-Americans, Black Americans, those answers are in the book. So be sure to check that out. And um, yeah, before you all leave, those of you in the audience, give me a moment to share what we're going to be talking about the next time we have this podcast discussion. And Kirsten and William, if you all have any last words that you want to share with the audience, uh, please share. Well, I would say, you know, don't, you know, don't forget that you have, you know, agency, that you have power yourselves as individuals and as members of formal and informal groups. And that you can write letters to your elected officials at every level, you know, from the city on up to the president, and let them know your thoughts about this. Uh, let them know that you understand that uh, there are many, many um, piecemeal and half a loaf programs that are masquerading as reparations, that what you understand uh, as reparations is a project that's going to eliminate the racial wealth gap. And that that's what's really important to you and that you vote. Um, but, you know, that's something that an individual could do, but you could also, you know, connect with your book club, with your uh, artisanal beer collective, you know, your ultimate Frisbee group. Mm. You know, all of these uh, entities have agency and have the ability to come together and talk about these issues and kind of, you know, figure out, you know, what you all um, what, what, you know, what you all understand, what you're trying to, um, what, you, what you want to learn and sharing your understanding, but also being active. And, um, you know, uh, our city council um, under the previous mayor unanimously passed a resolution in support of a true reparations program, a federal program. Um, but, and they also uh, talked about some of the, the resolution uh, speaks to some of the problems with H.R. 40. Uh, and I would say to folks, read H.R. 40. There's so many people who talk about H.R. 40 who have not read it. Right. And H.R. Uh, 40 is really problematic. Mm. Um, but because it's the only piece of legislation we have, basically, um, it, it, it comes off you know, negatively if you say I'm against H.R. 40. 
Uh, but we're we're for reparations, but we're not pro HR 40. Yeah, okay. and, and Kirsten, I mean, you wrote a very very fine op-ed piece on HR 40 that's in Bloomberg. Bloomberg uh, it was published about a year ago, maybe. Yeah, not quite a year ago. And uh, so, you know, I'd encourage people to take a look at that. And also, my last point. Kirsten did a, a great article on Queen Mother Audley Moore that's in a recent issue of Vanity Fair. Um, and uh, I would I would say people that it's it's not only valuable from an information standpoint, but it's entertaining. And so okay. in the November uh, November issue. Yeah, so please take a look at Thank that you. too. And we will check that out. So all of you who are asking questions about the books and the sources that they said, I promise you what I'm going to try to do by the end of the weekend is listen to the recording and I'll write them down and I'll send it to everybody um, in an email. And Kirsten and William, again, thank you for coming. Everyone else, please stay. Let me tell you about what we have coming up in the next few months for Entrepreneur Appetite that you all can join in person or uh, virtually. And so Kirsten and William, if y'all want to leave now, you can. We appreciate you coming. Good thank you. I'm going to share my screen. Wish you all the best with the audience so uh my my brothers both my brothers are here my brother devin clark thank you for being here and marshawn grace are with us i'm going to ask marshawn to type in the chat again the link to one of the next events that we have coming up as i share my screen and tell you a little bit about what we have coming here in the future and so in april i am partnering with the san antonio african-american community archive and museum known as SACAM to host a book discussion about uh, the Alamo, a cradle of lies, slavery, and white supremacy written by um, Mario Salas, who is um, a scholar here in the San Antonio community who is Afro-Latino and does a lot of work about the local history here in San Antonio. And so, as you all can see in the chat, I think uh, my brother Marshawn put it in there you can go to that link. You can register. It's a little different than our typical registration process because I am partnering with SACAM. And as I mentioned before, for those of you who are coming a little bit later, part of the mission of this platform, Entrepreneur Appetite, is to build community, promote intellectualism, and support Black businesses. And when I think about Black businesses, I think about that expansively. And so SACAM is one of the newest Black history museums in the country. I think it's only been around since 2015. And so this is, I mean, excuse me, 2018. And this is one of my efforts to support uh, the good work that's happening there. And so there will be a virtual option for $15 for those of you who are other places in the country to join and watch that virtually. But we also have an in-person option for those of you who are here locally in Texas and San Antonio, surrounding regions who want to come down. Um, it's $65, but you get a copy of the book, and there will be refreshments with that as well. Also want to make you all aware that uh, later on in March, we're going to have a conversation with Nia Bay, who is the author of Traveling Black, a story of race and resistance. And I'm going to try my best to partner with my homeboy, Leroy Adams, who is the founder of the Buddy Pass magazine, which is a new magazine um, that highlights and recognizes Black folks who travel across the United States, but then also around the world. And so um, we're going to be presenting some, some really cool stuff here coming up this spring, and we will continue to partner with Black um, institutions and businesses and organizations. And so for those of you who want to be ongoing supporters of Entrepreneurial Appetite, 
one of the things that we're trying to do is hire a black intern to help us with the production of the show. That includes the live production, but also the podcast, which you can get on all your podcast platforms, Entrepreneur Appetite. Um, and as a patron, you get access to our monthly conversations, but the money from that uh, will go to hire, like I said, a Black-owned intern. And as you all know or maybe don't know, um, students in our community oftentimes don't have um, the opportunities to get internships in the same way. And so we want to start getting these uh, students opportunities their freshman year so they can build some skills and put some things on their resume. So, again, I thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns or you want to find out other ways to support, feel free to email me or hit me up on LinkedIn at Langston Clark. And one more time, I thank all of you for joining us here uh, this evening.